All right, I think everything's recording. Cool. We never know. Yeah, no, that's good. That's how we do things here at Ember Map. We like to wing things. Absolutely. Improvisation. Jazz style. You know, there's not enough of that in programming. I really feel like we should deploy more improvised code production. <laughs> right? Just like well, I was feeling this. I was inspired. Mm. Wrote some lists here. Pushed it up to my server. You know, it doesn't work out, but... That's, it's not a terrible analogy. Like, it's not as simple as, like, oh, yeah, let's just deploy more. I know that that's, like, the joke version, right? But uh, there is that same creativity and improvisation going on in code. It's just before you can unlock that level, you have to already be, like, you know, there's this balance, right? If you're actually good enough that the code you're shipping is good, there, you do start to unlock that creativity, right? You but, have to be good with the tools. Yeah, you have to, yes, you have to know your... Well, like, and like a jazz musician, right? You can't really just go crazy improvising until you know what rules you're breaking and you're a master of your instrument. That's true. Yeah. You know the Brett Victor talks? You know Brett Victor? Yeah. He talks a lot about that, and he, he, he has some funny saying where he's like, um, yeah, the only people who can code today are people who have an, uh, happen to have a knack for manipulating um, like symbols yes. in yes. a weird way. Uh-huh. And there's lots of people who maybe could contribute or... Um, design systems similar to the ones we write with programming languages mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who are better um, with their hands or yes. with other visual um, right. tools but now there's like they're limited correct um, yes and yeah and we're we are still fundamentally limited by our input output technologies I think at this point right so it's like something like pervasive AR is gonna let people harness a big other chunk of their brains for understanding what's going on in a system if it's it's still really hard to go beyond the screen beyond purely visual and do those other things and i think it's mostly a hardware problem like there are some things you can do and you know he's demoed stuff but none of it ever goes beyond demo and i think programming is fundamentally symbolic or or maybe symbolic's the wrong word but language oriented like and cuz computer languages really are languages like they're tools for thinking and uh, so, if anything, I think the, the harnessing a larger set of people to do programming it probably harnesses more of our language instinct than our like spatial, physical instinct. I mean, some of that matters. Sometimes you're following problems that are very spatial, very visual, and having tools that support that, where you can actually see what's going on, matter a great deal. But a lot of what we do in programming is much more. Uh, is much. It is symbolic. It is ling- linguistic. And what's weird about it is more the level of precision required in the language than the fact that it's linguistic. Like humans, a much broader set of people have great linguistic capability than can program because it's just a weird level of precision that requires. Right. right? So like conversational programming where it's you're having... It's more forgiving. A, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would see that like accessible programming that actually does the programming part. Like, you know, there's, there's kind of low code approaches to things, which is which really comes down to having a great toolbox of primitives that already exist that you can plug together, like Legos. Like in practical terms, that's the only way we actually build software faster or let more people do it. But of course, that means somebody's gotta be making the Legos. There's always that problem. To do that piece and mm-hmm. get more people doing that, um, I think I would envision it going toward conversational. Right? Mm-hmm. Like being able to have a, dia- a, a two-way communication with the machine where you'd be like, I want it to do this. And they're like, well, here's what that looks like. I'm going to show you a dozen examples of what you just told me to do. And they're like, no, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant that. Interesting. Right. Is that 
kind of like the audio interface or something like a Siri or Alexa where um, it would use some of that. Yeah, have I mean, some it, forgiveness in, in the yeah. commands as, as opposed right. to like a syntax error. Yeah, no, it would definitely error. need some kind of so a bit of natural language. Um, you would need a, bun a bit of natural language understanding to get over the surface level what's hard about programming. Beginners think that's, when beginners encounter programming, they think that is what's hard about programming, right? It's mm -hmm. like remembering all the semicolons mm -hmm. and getting all the syntax right. And once you're experienced, you know that's not actually what's hard about it. Mm -hmm. It was That was just this annoying accidental complexity you had to get through. It's, uh, it's um, JavaScript state management is what's hard about programming. <laughs> That's the that is the thing. I, I suppose I suppose so. A state <laughs> management is hard, but people overestimate how much state they have or need. Um, yes, that's why it's hard. Yeah. Well, true, true, <laughs> true, true. Yes. Um, interesting. The the only th other thing I'll say about this is a uh, um, you know Brett Victor talking about mathematics, which originally struck me as even more kind of in this domain that you're talking about, it's more symbolic, more abstract. But then he was talking about some Calc three stuff and what what really cemented like Fourier sequences for mm -hmm, him mm -hmm. or um, like um, yeah some of the trigonometric geometry stuff. Yes. And it's like once you see it is actually yes. when you understand the formula. And so yes. there's still part of me that thinks like I'm not sure that there's maybe, very maybe the yes, future no, programming there, looks visual and, and manipulative. Some stuff and, is and is very visual. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. For me, learning trigonometry was just the natural fallout of wanting to be able to make little things shoot at each other on a screen, right? right. Like you need that. Right, right. And it, once you've done that once, you deeply just get why you'd have it. And uh, I, I do think that, I mean, maybe this is the bubble I travel in, but I think that mathematical visualization as a way to teach um, has gotten dramatically better. Like I. Again, uh, maybe most kids in school are still not getting a chance to see an animation of a, um, you know, like a Fourier series of spinning circles that draws the draws out a function. But like, they should, mm -hmm. and more and more are finally. Like, mm -hmm. there's just you can't stop it. There's so much good content out there. Like right. even just random YouTube videos or right. that. You know, there's a natural inclination that if you're trying to teach this stuff, you're just some teacher and you're just you've got the tools that you were given, but it's kind of hard not to notice now that there's all these other tools out there that are just, even if it's like a, a 30 second clip can make a real difference when you can visualize these things. Yep. Yeah. Have you, have you ever seen, um, was it's like three blue, one brown on YouTube? Some, I don't know something. that one. They, no. He does like all these math visualizations yeah. I, and they do, they like click when you see I, I drive my wife crazy because if, if I'm sitting like next to her and we're, I'm like flipping through YouTube, it's, it's all math videos and things like that. <laughs> She's like, she'll Vi, hear- Vida she, Hart, or, or what's her name? Um, Vi, Vi Hart, she makes these really cool videos. Oh yeah? Well. She's a great one. Like, like the Cantor. Fractals. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Cantor, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, my like, there's a stand-up maths guy out of the UK. Uh, I like his stuff. He's very <laughs> amusing. And uh, the Mathologer videos, that, that, he's like super dry math professor with an extremely geeky sense of humor. And when his intro music plays, she, my wife was just like, oh, another one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so we were at the Cauldron for dinner last night, which is possibly the nerdiest bar slash restaurant in all of Manhattan. It's a, it's a Lord of the Rings. It's not even just Lord of the Rings. It's like generic fantasy, sci-fi. <laughs> like you can get a, a cock, like Garv got a cocktail that like you pour this potion in it like bubbles over yeah. <laughs> and um ed and um um who else got the um jen had one the flaming had cocktail one, the, the flaming cocktail yeah, yeah do you actually light it on fire it, it comes they, out they, on they, fire they, yeah 
but we were having this debate at the beginning of the meal who's like the nerdiest because like programmers <laughs> are already pretty nerdy but this yeah. was an exceptionally nerdy table and jen wore uh an elvish necklace to her wedding yeah <laughs> and ed what was the nerdiest thing that we were saying? I mean, you, you? If you were asking if I could speak any Elvish. I was like, oh, right. I understand a little. I, 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 I can't really speak it, but I understand a few words. Yeah. So this is a pretty epic battle going on right now in the cauldron. And yeah. I was just like, yep, I'm proud to be here. I, I could probably tell you the names of like all the horses in Lord of the Rings. You know, wow. like, you know, but Like not just Shadow Facts. No, oh, like no, no. Many of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hasafel and Asphalath. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I basically started running out of names because, like, I don't know, naming servers over the years, they were always, like, a Lord of the Rings character. And I got through all of the, like, first-class characters, and then I started getting down to the secondary characters. Now I've got got ones named after, you know, like, the animals now, you know. It's like you run out of names. That's funny. (laughs) They are good names, though. Oh, totally. Talk about language. That's... Okay, anyways, so... Yeah, totally, no. (laughs) Tolkien would probably be interested in programming languages. He was so, so into languages. Yeah. I liked what you were saying about the um, wanting to make things move on the screen and therefore learning about Fourier series because it feels like that's been a lot of what your work has been. Um, like, how do you happen to know about writing um, like friction tweens and yeah. animated? Yeah, and it's probably because yeah, yeah. you wanted you had an idea for Correct. what you wanted this div to look like when it moved yeah, across the I screen. Yeah, I mean, right. It, it, it's a lot of just growing intuition from experience, right? Um, it's. It's the stuff that um, is like criminally bad at the way schools teach math. Um, they, they give everybody the impression that it's about getting the right answers. And uh, video games and animation are actually like a perfect antidote to that because it's very clear that the right answer is when it feels the way you want it to, right? Like what's the right, like, what's the right math to use to make a div feel, mo- feel realistic? It's probably not even like you could, if you want to say, okay, well, it's it's the right math if you actually use the same physics a real object would have. But like all of that just has judgment calls. There's no real object that's not real, right? So it's all very subjective and creative. And uh, to do that with math requires a totally different mindset when you approach it. It's all about knowing the feel of things, getting a sense for the aesthetics of things. And um, I think that's where all the fun is and, and like, most people only get a tiny glimpse of that if the, the way they're exposed to math in schools. Uh, we should be making a lot more kids make video games, I think. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. Um, something you said reminded me of your talk from last year, actually, which I rewatched um, in prep for our Ember Animated training. And you were talking about how you think most the way most people approach animation on the web is, is wrong because it's too hard. It makes it too hard for people. Mm-hmm. That was one of the mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. And it also seems like a theme in some of your other work and you know, even just ten minutes ago, you were talking about the Lego blocks and the builders of those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that seems like maybe it's something that is like one of your values. I think, and, oh and yeah, probably totally. Probably why you're probably in the in the Ember community. Yes. No, I, I can I can summarize pretty succinctly what I see as the kind of motivating mission value in the work I try to do, which is. I see the importance and power of software just taking over everything and affecting every aspect of life. And at the same time, the from two directions, we fail to give people that access to most of that power. From the, from the design of our tools side, our tools are not humanis- humanistic enough. They're not well-designed enough. They're not um, accessible enough. We can make the tools far better so that they're... M- 
So the affordances are just fit many more people, right? And from the other side, it's the way that we teach people to think, the way that we teach people to about about math, about logic, about programming, is very off. And it, that, again, robs people the ability to take advantage of all this power that software is putting out into the world. And so that closing that gap I see as a major social problem because you know, when software mediates everything, if you, if you would have no understanding of it and it's only controlled by this tiny priesthood, you don't end up with a equal or fair or egalitarian society or like, you know, you can't have liberty, you can't have equality, you don't have any of those things if there's a tiny priesthood who controls all the software and nobody else understands software, right? So, and I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it comes down to delegating, like there's a certain, there's certain things you just don't want to delegate if you want to have a society where everybody's participating, right? So I, I do want to see a world where computers are a thing that actually empowers ordinary people. That was the original vision of the PC revolution, all this stuff. If you look at when people were like first putting computers into the hands of ordinary people, that was a big deal. Up till that point, computers were a thing that only like governments and militaries and massive corporations even had had, right? I just watched uh, Gary Bernhardt's talk on Doug Engel Engelbert uh-huh. on the mother of all demos. Yeah. And that was all what that talk was about. Exactly, exactly. That was the original vision, right? It was this it was going to liberate people because ordinary people would have all this power. And it did a lot of that. It's like we definitely democratized a lot of things. Um, even just desktop publishing, people forget how big a deal that was that you could now, with just a computer, you could make a publication and share it with everybody. Even if that was, even even in print form, pre, right. pre-web, that was still a big deal. Like, compared with what came before. And then, of course, the web takes that way further, right? Right. Um, so a lot of the promise has happened, um, but there's so much more to do, you know? Um, yeah. And there's definitely a pendulum that swings back and forth in terms of how centralized things get and how distributed things get. Yeah. And um, it's easy to get pessimistic when you see how centralized and entrenched network effects can be with some, like, of the Facebook of today, right? Or, you know... There, but we've been there before. It goes, we, does these things go through cycles? I think there will be another swing toward a more diverse, decentralized internet. We need to figure out how to make it happen. Everyone writes their own blogs. I think that's the answer. Well, I mean, kind of. <laughs> it's like kind uh, of what everyone's been doing the last few months, right? True. Everyone's true, true. pulling out a medium and, and yeah. Facebook well, that's a good point. Writing yeah. Gatsby blogs. I mean, yeah. that's you know, yeah. there, there's some there's something there. There's something there. I think that. Um, you know, we have to remember, like, from a design perspective, from a UI perspective, it's not like uh, Facebook did anything super innovative. The innovative thing was the packaging that made it, brought it all together really nicely for people who, like, the the geeks among us were already sharing photos on the internet and writing, sharing posts on the internet and had a feed of all our friends because it was the RSS or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But it was too hard to, for ordinary folks to do. Facebook packaged that up, made it easy, mm-hmm. and that became the way everybody did everything. Mm-hmm. But you know, now they've actually taught those patterns. Now the idea of like making a post is a thing everybody knows. So that like, there's this definitely in design. There's this interplay between you can only innovate so far because people have their understanding of how systems work, right? Mm-hmm. And if you try to you so once people have learned a thing, the the bar gets lower for the next iteration around. Like now that mm-hmm. a lar- now that everybody understands what it's like to make an Instagram post to update a Facebook status, um, that does actually help like craft the next version of this, right? Like you can now you don't have to invent the paradigm. People understand the paradigm. So the hope would be that yeah, like 
I don't know what the shape of it looks like. I don't know what is the, what's the hook that gets people to do a new thing, but the new thing will, you know, it's, it will, it'll take advantage of the patterns people already know. Okay. Just hopefully in a way that's, that's, uh, more accessible more, to more people. Yeah. And, and even less, um, you know, as a side effect of, of the centralization, we've also just got a web that's a lot more boring, right? Like it's all looks the same. You can't, I mean, is there's definitely pros and cons to the fact that you don't, you can't MySpace up your Facebook page and make right. it like, you know, change the background to right. flashing stars or something. <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who got their start in technology by just messing with stuff like that, yep. right? And uh, when it's you don't see that in the centralized platforms because they're trying to have a really consistently controlled experience. Maybe that's the thing that gets a pendulum to swing back to the decentralized, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to customize stuff, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we see, like you said, with blogs, we see more people yeah. moving yes. off medium and, and setting up their own stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you have to just it has to get that it has to be easy, and. Uh, but it can be. It's like this. We keep come out. And it's open source. We keep commoditizing all the all the hard parts, right? And it's just, it takes longer than people think. It always does because, like, actually solid software that's really reusable that many people can use. It's harder to build than people think, especially if you come from way a, way harder. Well, yeah. well, it has to stand the test of time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so even if you build the perfect thing, it, yes. it's worthless until right, it lasts right. for ten years. Yeah, exactly. And and especially. This is especially acute misunderstanding in, in like the web app development space because, um, you know, a good thing about web development is that it's very accessible. Lots of people get into it as their first part, first thing they do in technology. You can come from a relatively less technical role and shift into a more technical role and learn the technologies as you go. And that's great and it's empowering and it's a good thing. It's a good thing that JavaScript is like a language that's running on every computer already and anybody can just pick it up and start learning it. That's really great. Um, but it gives us this social challenge where like the, because the set of people who are doing it is growing all the time, uh, the average level of experience, the median level of experience is extremely low, right? Like, because no matter how fast you train up people and people grow and get more experienced, there's a fat tail, there's the, just a constant influx of newbies. And so the overall level of discourse doesn't really go beyond newbie. Um, I mean, often it, it does, but it, there's like always that it puts a it definitely sets the tone for the whole community right you can only go so fast or so far and it's not that um it's not that you can't have um it's not that you can't grow good technology it's not that newbies can't use good technology or even see it or, or know it when they see it but um it's more about the questions and the framing people have when they talk about what what's important in software what's hard in software uh tends to have blind spots right like there's there's just things that are hard that you don't realize are hard until you've gotten four years in on some like yeah. long-lived application right or or until you've tried to build the distinction between an application like if you've been building apps for specific you know a specific client or your job um that's an ex that's like a very different kind of programming than making the the next layer of infrastructure down like making like You'd be like, well, I've made a bunch of apps, so I know what apps need, so I'm going to build my own bundling system because I know what apps need. That's like, it's good that people make that leap. Uh, people absolutely should make that leap. I'm not discouraging anybody from trying to make infrastructure, but they, everybody, when they do that, underestimates the difficulty of what they're of the the step function they just went up. Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, going all the way back to um, let's see the. Um, who wrote the Mythical Man Month? Oh, Fred, Fred, Fred Brooks. Right. So one of his good essays in there, in that collection, 
uh, talks about the difference between uh, like making a program, making a program program that's a product, and making a program that's a system. And it basically makes a two-dimensional axis out of it where like you start with just, you have a program. It's basically, it works on my machine, right? And that's a certain level of effort. And we know that that's like the least effort is like, I just made a program. It solves, it solves my problem and it runs on my machine. One customer. Yeah, right. And then not even maybe customer because it's like to, to go to product, it, it, I mean, maybe yes. To go to product, it has to satisfy more than one customer, or it's got to be polished enough that other people can learn it, or it's got to work on their machine and not just my machine. So you, to go from program to program product adds like very significant difficulty, right? And he, in his in his very rough, uh, like, and this is dating all the way back to the '80s, right? M measuring specific projects back then. So take it with a grain of salt. But you know, he was calling it like a factor of three or four x. Like after you've actually completed the program, to go all the way to product was three or four x more work. And then along the other dimension was a programming system, which is really when you're writing a program that's going to have to be used and interact with other programs. Mm -hmm. So something like you know a framework, a web framework, a build system, mm -hmm. uh, a library that's going to be underneath a lot of other apps. Now you're talking about making a programming system. That was also a factor of three or four x harder in terms mm -hmm. of the time it takes to get it right. And of course, those then compose right. so that if you're making a programming system product, you're now at nine or 12x difficulty. And if you've only ever worked on like apps that are either completely at just like program level or program product level, it's you can actually be extremely hard on yourself when you're like, why is this taking so long? Why is it so bad? It's like it's actually supposed to take 10 times longer. You don't yeah. realize. Yeah. Right? Um, so we definitely see that in the web a lot because because people get to start out on the easy corner and, yeah. and you can do cool and interesting things on the easy corners. Like I can just make a web page and it works and it looks good and I can even send that to my friends. Like that's really powerful and, and it's great and accessible. Um, but then like it's easy to, to not notice where the cliffs are. Yep, totally. I mean, yeah. You work on a lot of those, you know, nine to, mm -hmm. to 10 X. Um, I do. System that's where I, that's what I enjoy. And, um, I mean, and, and honestly, honestly I, I mean, yes, I enjoy them, but I also sometimes just feel like I'm, I'm sucked into being in that part of, of the problem space because it's just true that there's, uh, like e each of those, you've been around the block. Uh, yeah. I've been around the yeah. block. So there's only so many people who do yeah. those things. And have, have um, you noticed anything that lets you, you know, not pay that nine to ten x cost, but oh. maybe there's like a five x jump you can make. Sure, or sure. Like... I mean, well, a lot of it. I think the only the only that's also Fred Brooks's essay. Right? It's called "There's No Silver Bullet," uh, but in there he actually has the hint of what what is the silver bullet, which is really comes down to the the buzzword then was code reuse, but it's really I would call it open source, or I would call it you know sharing shared infrastructure, right? Um, the only way to go faster is to have code that already works and that you know not only exists but exists with uh, with primitives and interfaces that you can actually understand and build upon. And when you have that, uh, then you can go faster, right? So, for example, um, like there's not a shortcut that would let you build a complete great application framework for the web without paying the the full cost of making a full programming system. But if you were to like starting if you were starting today and you wanted to curate an experience like that, there's an awful lot of the sub pieces that you could take that exist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you would be like, oh, well, I don't have to write a transpiler because like Babel is good enough and I don't need to 
figure out how to traverse the module graph if I plug in Webpack there, right? Like, so it all matters. Like, you, you can go faster with that. Um, it's not that, uh, so yes, you can go faster, but you still need to be, I think you still need the same skill set because knowing which existing thing to use is kind of, you need to be able to judge it critically Mm-hmm. At the level of, I could have made this, but I'm not going to make it because I see that it's good enough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, and, and that, that's also why in, in like, with the, the median JavaScript developer being very green, mm-hmm. uh, decisions about what technology to choose end up being very tedious because uh, it is hard to pick among things that are, it's much easier to choose among technologies that you could have made yourself, but you realize it's better to share with the community, right? Um, that's like the once you're experienced, you can get to that point. You could say, I, I get, I get how this works. Uh, I see why they did what they did. I can understand the trade-offs they made. Those seem like good trade-offs to me. I'm going to use that tool. But of, of course, a lot of the value of the tools is accruing to people who couldn't have written them in the first place, who are really then um, they're forced to decide on a lot less information, right? They, and so you definitely get more uh, trend-driven, fad-driven, like, what am I, what, and that's not, that's not to say, even be super critical, like, that's just how humans have to function, right? We can't all, we can't all figure out everything from first principles. We have right. to do that's, what that's our friends tr- are doing. That's true everywhere, yes. not just software. Exactly, so. right, like, you know, you can't, be, you're not gonna become an expert in medicine to decide what to do. You've gotta, like, follow what seems to be the, the best advice and, and trust some expert or, you know, ask what your friends are doing, right? And, um, so that happens and totally happens in software too. Um, but it does mean that it's like, uh, it can be frustrating and tedious for the folks who do have the, the, the deeper expertise. Um, who would rather build consensus around things and be able to move on to the next ladder, next rung of the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Um, or even just, even just making, you know, uh, having frustration over, um, basically like the difference between something that just got virally successful versus like this and this gets to the balance a balance in all business and in all open source too is just like you know half your success is actually the product and half your success is how well you communicate its value and Mm -hmm. spread it right and uh, i think it actually it might change that i might personally change that to 10 percent 10% 10% product? Product, yeah, 90% sure, sure, how you sure. communicate. Right, well, exactly. Which it's, goes back to something you were saying earlier, which um, was that Facebook didn't do anything radically innovative. They mm-hmm. just packaged existing tech in a way that made things accessible. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. My, pers- my personal belief, having worked in open source for five or six years now and seeing projects that are the most successful is that that's actually way more important than the underlying yeah. kind of technology yeah. and not for a bad reason either Correct, the, yes. for the reason that it's um yeah it's accessible it meets people where they're at yes and um, you could have the greatest lines of code in the world hidden yes. in some subdirectory somewhere and if it's not yes yeah. yes yes so yeah exactly and so you basically know, people judge a book by its cover mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um they have to because they're exposed to so many different uh, options Right. every day to solve their problems or to make a choice about some consumer. So they end up using the surface level thing as a proxy for mm-hmm. what's underneath. Correct. And yes. so right. and, and you even tie if that there's something good underneath, if you haven't put the work into the super, superficial level, mm-hmm. they have nothing better to do than to discount the work. Yes, exactly. And they, and, and it tie, that it ties into network effect stuff too, right? Where obviously for Facebook, that's a big deal for them. Like the fact that your friends were all there is what matters a lot and what keep you, keeps you there. Um, but for like, 
programming systems too, right? NPM is a perfect example of a, of a technology that's successful for network effect reasons. Yeah. And even though we all yeah, even though I despise uh, it. You, 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 <laughs> you need, can be honest. Do you on need this some? Podcast. Do you need some link bait? You want me to throw some shade? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, we've it's had very this conversation before. I, that's one of the things that I'm most. Fr- yeah, that's something that. Every, grinds this my is a good ears. week to throw shade at NPM because everybody's mad at them for for like very handedly laying off a lot of their team. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but you know, I, my just my overall impression of them, even just being trying to be charitable, yeah. is just that they had a kind of viral success and ended up in over their heads very early and have been in over their heads ever since. Yeah. And um, it, it's actually a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier of underestimating the difficulty of becoming a programming system. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, as somebody who had worked with like you know, I don't know how many how many package systems prior to JavaScript and NPM enough to know what's good and bad about a package system. Mm-hmm. You'd look at NPM and in the first 10 minutes, you'd look through the feature list and say, ah, okay, it's missing that. And it's missing that. And you'd say, this is going to be painful. And, but you couldn't convince like the people who are excited about it that because, and because they hadn't hit those problems yet, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't hit those problems till later or until you have a big enough ecosystem. Right. And it's things like, um, you know, it wasn't until NPM five they had a true lock file, right? right? And even then, it wasn't super great. And it's right. still uh, like the there's a what NPM considers pure dependencies. There's a concept there that's truly needed and truly needs first class support and is still yep. lacking. Yep. And it just causes a lot of pain and friction. And so it's like it was actually very heartening. And this isn't all NPM. This isn't all NPM. It's also on Node because NPM followed Node's own conventions of Node modules resolution and stuff. The author of whom has totally disavowed it. So at this point, I don't feel like I'm throwing any horrible shade. Like, yeah. um, I, I, we can all hope for the success of the Yarn plug and play initiative, which, um, like, you can use it now. It's pretty solid. It's, um, it solves most of the problems. Could you give a little synopsis of, of that? Yarn plug and play? Yeah. So it's it basically you, at a high level, think about it. Patching nodes require function to have a better way to do it. Right? I see. So. It lets you have uh, a single copy of each version of each thing on your system once, and they'll all wire up to each other correctly. If you had to boil the problem with NPM down, it's basically from the step when require is called until the building of the dependency mm-hmm. graph. That's like the the root of the issues. Like that's where uh, the, the, the yeah. resolution algorithm that well, yields a graph of all the modules is. There's a, there's like two par- there's at least two or three parts that are that are the problems. It's fractally problematic. There's <laughs> sounds like exactly the kind of problem you want to have. Yeah, well, choose, really. sure, sure. <laughs> so no, I mean like one yeah. problem is that the way the node modules resolution works, it, you represent your dependency graph as this tree on the file system, mm-hmm. right? You have nested node modules folders. The problem is that a tree and a graph are not the same mathematical structure, <laughs> and the dependency graph is a graph and not a tree. But, it, but to use the node module structure, you have to represent it as a tree. So right there, you end up with inefficiencies and confusions. And, and the specific example to make this concrete is like, if, um, if multiple of the libraries you're using, many of them use the same, some shared dependency, um, if they all use it, you can lift it up to the highest level and they'll all share it. But if only some of them use it and others use a different version, you can't, the ones that share can't share. They all end up with their own copy. Right. There's, there's no level in Whereas the file system. Whereas if you system. had a graph, yeah. you would be able to do that. You'd have a new node. You would just make a new edge. Yeah, a new edge. Right. So, yeah. So, like, in the Yarn plug-and-play, it's just a new edge, right? Like the, Interesting. 
Uh, and, and all of that, and uh, like for Yarn plug and play, they've tried to make it really fast. So they, they basically construct those edge, that list of edges once when you run the install, and then it's just, so every require, it literally just looks look, a lookup in a lookup table. So it doesn't traverse the file system. Ah, ah, ah. Does that mean like the node modules are all top level and the linking is done separately? Yeah, well, you don't even have a node modules folder in your project. You just have like a .pnp directory that has like the fairly opaque some structure look up, look up structure look up. that knows where they are out in I a cache see. somewhere yeah uh, so That's you know pretty interesting yeah sounds pretty cool it's a big performance win it's like in terms of how much you download in terms of how much even traversal happens at runtime it yep. helps with both it's actually also kind of critical this takes us into embroider and the build system work i'm doing because it's kind of important for that um, i mean not that it's a hard requirement but uh, one of the one of the good things about ember cli is, as it is now is that it it doesn't uh, like respect because it doesn't respect node, full node modules resolution. It's harder to end up with duplication in your Ember app, right? Like you can't. Act, it's hard to have two copies of the same add-on on different versions. Like Ember that doesn't really support that, right? Like if for Ember add-ons, yeah. Well, for yeah. So say for for almost anything, but specifically for Ember add-ons, yes. If like if your app uses Ember Power Select version one and one of your add-ons uses mm -hmm. Ember Power Select version two. You, somebody just wins. It all flattens down today. Right. Um, but uh, so a that's not always what you want. Sometimes you really do want duplication. Right. Uh, but um, and and it's weird. Like it's weird that we have our own resolution system. So with embroidery, sometimes you end up with a Frankenstein version of it. Yes. Thing correct. Where, yeah. Where they, yeah. That's correct. They even get merged. Yeah. So like yeah. we know that's not great, right? So um, in embroidery, we just like say no. Like let's just follow what the rest of the ecosystem is doing. Follow the node modules rules. That does allow duplication, um, but then it brings with it the problems that all node modules resolution has. So yeah. you might get more versions than you want. Yeah. And so now. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is that it's the it's not now a unique problem to our build, or yeah. or even shouldn't. I don't think it should even be solved in the build. It's something that you want to run. Uh, like at the time you're doing npm install or yarn install or whatever, you want to get your dependencies all resolved then, right? So. There's tools for that already that are, exist. You can use Yarn to duplicate. You can um, dependency lint, basically yes, to tell yes, you stuff like that. Exactly. The first step you'd want to know as a right. developer. Exactly. This exactly. is happening, and then you can decide how to deal with yeah, it. Yeah. So you really just want to actually get that stuff flattened out. And Yarn plug and play would definitely fits the bill for that because it, it would like deduplicate things down as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Right. Take advantage of all the edges where you can, and then use Yarn resolutions. You, you can even force things to mm -hmm. deduplicate where it wasn't. The original package author didn't make it clear enough that the range is wide. The range of supported versions is actually wider than they said, and you right. could like cheat. And so uh, it, it comes up though, it, like when you test real apps, uh, it does sometimes come up right away because there's certain things that don't really don't want to be du duplicated. Right. Various add-ons that do things that will like crash more when they're. It's funny how many of the problematic cases I've found are places where an add-on author was trying really hard to be compatible with a lot of versions of things, mm. and. Um, and that being the, the, the stuff that breaks. So like, um, like I want to say like Ember Inflector, right? Which is an add-on that's pretty core. It was extracted out of core stuff. Uh, and, you know, it used to extend the string prototype and put methods on it. And mm -hmm. That's deprecated. But to try to be helpful, it like adds, it does object defined property to add those, add like deprecation warnings on string, right? But of course, now if you load two copies of it, they both try to set the same property on that and it blows up. Um, right? So it's like little things like that where uh, it just goes to show that like... It's the 10x thing. No well, kind of, yeah. The, the author of um, Inflector, when, they were, when the developer was writing that 
piece of code was never expecting their library to get run twice in the same environment. Sure. It's not even, they sure. weren't even thinking about that. Right, right. Right. Um, well, or, or going back even further, like the idea of extending the prototypes of the built-in objects, right? Right. Like, that was trendy for a while in, right. the, in the web in general. Um, but then everybody was like, yeah, this doesn't compose. This, these right. systems grow under, un, not understandable and they right. break. And right. so everybody realized that was bad. So this was, and you're like, we know that's bad. We can obviously take that code out. It's old code at this point. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. So I, I want to get more into embroider. I think yeah. that'll be something that's I think so good too. to talk about. But just kind of to segue there. Um, so I just given our conversation about the 10x thing, you mm-hmm. know, um, when I first heard about Embroider, it was basically at EmberConf. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the question it, to start this is like for folks who are working on those libraries that you're talking about that don't have kind of um, the right abstractions in them and you as an experienced person see that and you're like, okay, it's missing like a lock file or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going to come back and bite them. Um, when someone's in that position, what is the right move? Because mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. part of the keynote this year, EmberConf, was almost like an admission that this happened to us as well, right? There was lots of things that we tried to do at the um, systems level with Ember first launched, mm-hmm. you know, both the rendering engine, Ember Data, Ember CLI, all these things. And it turns out that it's a much harder problem to solve than um, you think at the beginning. And so it takes some time to like, so yeah, what's the, what is the right path out there sure, sure, sure. and then like to bring that into embroider like um just to be frank like when i saw embroider i was like is it we just talked about all these things that that we were doing and it would turn out to be too hard so we're going to try to like stop new work uh, and then sure. kind of finish what we started sure, and sure. then it's like we have a new well, thing called embroider yeah so, so. Le- there's there's a there's definitely you're, yeah the the exact trap that you're talking about that was identified in that talk right is this idea of trying to like make too big a leap and right. you're absolutely right that that's a challenge. So the, the way you, and, and honestly, um, that was like repeatedly the trap that was also preventing Ember CLI from getting better pre-embroider. So the difference is, um, we, so there are both cases where we've messed that up and we've learned from them. And there's also cases where we've actually done, it extre- done an extremely good job of like, moving to a whole better system in a, in a gradual way that, or in a, in a safe way that, that succeeded wildly. So our success cases are things like, like getting Glimmer 2 underneath Ember and things like that, mm-hmm. where all the guts were completely replaced and in a way that was actually like a decent upgrade for everybody. And Definitely agree there. Right, so like that, and so we, we've almost started, because that's an, a good success example, we tend to use the word glimmerizing a, a problem. I see. And uh, the way you glimmerize a problem is you um, you need to identify and design the small core of clean abstractions that the, that you really wish the system had, right? Like the new the new thing, right? And in, in Glimmer, that was like Glimmer's got a reference system and some very low level primitives around how you know you pull on a state and see and track what's changed and things like that. Um, there's like, there's a bunch of code there. There's a bunch of abstractions there. Um, definitely lower level than what an Ember developer wants to deal with day to day. But like those, knowing what those abstractions were and getting them really clean. And in Glimmer particularly, it was like realizing 
we'd always thought about that our like our templating language as a true programming language, growing mm -hmm. programming language capabilities. Glimmer's implementation made that very clear by actually just implementing it as one. Like it's got mm. internally like invoking a calling a component is really a function call and it works like a function call in, in the Glimmer virtual machine, right? So um, and the number of primitive operations that virtual machine can do is actually quite small. There's only so many instructions that it has, right? It's like a very it's a very clean, elegant core. And that's a very big contrast from what it replaced, which was very ad hoc and just had grown over time, right? Mm -hmm. So the first step is identifying that clean core, but then the critical second step is um, re-implementing the existing system in terms of the new clean core, right? So that's where like at least half the work is. It's the work that people tend to leave out when they try to do the jump, like the just like leap from the bad old thing to the better new thing. Um, and because it, it's easier it to just sounds leave easier. people behind. Yeah, it sounds and easier. Just work right. with the new clean core, right. but right. the hard work is. And also the 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 test of whether or not the abstraction is truly it's actually the correct, correct one. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so this is like: Can Ember be rewritten in the new Glimmer? Can Liquid Fire be rewritten in Ember Animated? Yeah, same kind of thing. That's exactly, exactly right. So you gotta. Um, and so I don't. You know, it sounds like it's harder to do the work to redefine the old system in the new primitives, but I don't think it's. It's not like an extra cost. It's actually extremely valuable work mm -hmm. because you do have this body of existing use cases out there and you need to make sure they're all covered. Mm -hmm. And you definitely learn from the work of trying to <clears throat> make sure that the new thing can do all the things the old thing did in, in, in a, like, and not just in a like in a, a hand, less ad hoc way. Yeah, not just in a hand wavy way, but to say it can literally like down at the level of, of precision of actual code, it can do their things, right? Um, so that's going to be, Embroider is going to re- power the existing Ember CLI APIs. Yeah, so it's that already, ones. right? So it's that already. Um, like existing apps work today, right? Like if- uh, So what is Embroider? Sure, so it's a, it's a new build pipeline for, for Ember CLI. Uh, <clears throat> so to describe at a high level architecturally what it fixes, um, our you know, so when Ember CLI got started, it was actually controversial just to have a build tool and require it, right? Like, we were definitely out ahead in, of the rest of JavaScript at that time. People thought it was really, like, why, I can't just have script tags anymore. What are you talking about? This is horrible. I don't want to have build tools. I'm not a back-end developer. <laughs> and um, we, 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 de we decided it was worth pushing on that, even though it was controversial, because we knew it was going to be critical. Like, we knew that over time, the capabilities you get by having your own compiler and build system is just so powerful that you need it to give people the nice development experiences they want. So, you know, Ember CLI was born and grew, and, and you know, it's older than the ECMA module spec. Uh, it predates all these other build tools that are now popular. Babel, even? Uh, yeah, or like probably at least contemporary with Babel, but yeah, like not, not much, certainly not younger. And um, so, you know, the kind of prior art it grew from were examples like the like the the Rails asset pipeline of the time and uh, stuff that you know we look at today and we're like, yeah, that was pretty hard to work with. Um, we've learned a lot since then. Um, these systems tended to be um, I'll call them push based. So like you tend to push code into your build, and so like mo most specifically like. Just the act of creating a file in your app 
like adding a new component or something pushes it into the build. Like it's going to end up in the build. Mm-hmm. Or and even more critically, like adding a library, adding an, an add-on to your app pushes a bunch of stuff into your build. Right. Like you go and add. Uh, you like if you say Ember add Ember CLI Mirage, a bunch of new stuff's going to end up in your app, mm-hmm. even though you didn't do anything yet to try to use it in the app. Like, mm-hmm. So everything's push based. Mm-hmm. Um, the the ES module spec, and even before that, really, like the web in general. If you think about the way HTML relates to JavaScript, relates to CSS, it's pull based, right? Like you have an HTML file that refers to some JavaScript, so then you get the JavaScript. Today, you even even just in browsers, you can actually say, say in that JavaScript, you can say it's type module, and it, it imports another module, and it will go get that one. And that's a more pull-based way of doing things, right? Everything gets pulled in. Uh, it's the pattern now that many JavaScript developers are familiar with because it's how Webpack, Parcel, the, these roll up, this how these guys work, right? It was pull-based. They were all kind of built post ES module spec. Um, we adopted the ES module authoring spec very early. We helped write it. Like Ember people were at TC39 creating the module spec and making sure that it would meet our needs. And we adopted it before it was even final. Uh, so that has been actually, but we didn't ever really fully adopt the semantics of modules into our build system in deep way to make it really pull based right? until now. So that's what Embraer is trying to fix. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so. The saving grace that makes Embraer possible is that we adopted the authoring format very early, and it's very consistently used. So people writing Ember apps and add-ons are authoring modules, and modules are very analyzable in terms of what they depend on. So um, we haven't been taking advantage of that in the existing build pipeline, but the data is there. Like the you can analyze the graph of what depends on what very consistently. So Embraer is able to compile all of our existing stuff forward into a new world where. It is all statically build time, finding each other and pulling in stuff. So when you, uh, the experience of, try, of using it on an app is like you change a couple lines in your Ember CLI build file to import the Embraider build pipeline. It's the, where you would have returned app to tree, you actually just take that app and you hand it to Embraider and you return Embraider's tree. And you run Ember build and it builds with Embraider instead of Ember CLI's stock build pipeline. Um, we run you through a three. St- there's a three-stage process inside the, the internals of Embraer. is a three-stage build. Uh, the first stage takes all the existing add-ons, and, and the add-ons really um, are not. It's not ancillary. It's like that's actually the interesting hard part of the problem of, of reforming our build pipeline because add-ons were very very powerful. What they could do today, as opposed to generic npm package. Yeah, exactly. So you treat them separately. Well. Certainly today, Ember CLI does right in a very, in a very strong way. Like it, they, they're really add-ons are really programs that can emit code, right? They're they're full programs. Like when they ha- emit custom broccoli trees, right? That, that's the implementation. Broccoli's not either here nor there. Embraer still uses broccoli. It's not like it's an anti-broccoli thing. But like the fact that add-ons themselves run arbitrary code to decide what code they contain when you go to build your app mm-hmm. makes them not analyzable, right? It's all very dynamic. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first stage of the embroider pipeline is actually to compile all the existing add-ons to a new format that is way more static. So as part of the project, we've been drafting a spec for like what we want the new add-on format to be, the publication format, like what goes on NPM. Uh, it doesn't, 
I doesn't necessarily have an opinion about the authoring format. That might even still be, it could still be the same, but it would give you a publish command that compiles you to the, the publication format that goes on NPM. Can you give some examples like where I would normally use like an index.js file mm -hmm. and like a tree for vendor right. hook right, or right. something like that? That yeah, would be sure. different or Yeah, totally. So in the um, so the point is that in a V2 formatted add-on, which is what, like a, as a shorthand for what this new format is, right? A V2 add-on would have, uh, it doesn't have any tree four hooks, mm. right? So its code has got to just be there sitting on disk. Mm -hmm. That takes away a lot of the dynamism. Uh, the, bet, the plus sides are that your build is now way simpler and faster because mm -hmm. there's less work to do. And TypeScript understands your files. SAS understands your files. Mm -hmm. VS Code understands your files because they're all just sitting there. You could jump to definition and it'll know where they are, mm -hmm. right? So um, that has a lot of benefit. The um, so it takes away some of the power, and the solution to that is um, a couple of different features, right? So one is that in the V2 spec, um, like the Ember Auto import type behavior, import from npm is just standard. It's a thing you're allowed to do. So a lot of the stuff that you would have had to do with some kind of custom mangling of builds, just you, you do with that instead. That's less code right there. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that uh, Embroider has a macro system in the sense of uh, the best example of an existing macro that people use is the, the Ember CLI HTML bars inline precompile, super mm -hmm. long name, right? But that HBS backtick macro, right? You can think of it as a macro because it's a thing that runs in the build, right? It, it looks like a tag template string, but we run it in, during the build process and compile your templates, right? Mm. So, because it's like there's a Babel it's plugin. It's not a runtime function call. Yeah, it's a Babel plugin mm. instead that handles it, right? So, that's an example of a macro. Embroider carries with it, uh, there's like an at embroider slash macros package that has macros implemented both for JavaScript and for handlebars that gives you things like. Um, conditionals that are going to run at build time. So you can strip out the code that's not needed. So you can have your, you know, if the Ember version is old, include this compatibility code, otherwise don't. And so you can have that right in your code that you publish to NPM. And the difference now is that like the files on disk are all static there. Um, and also you're not bringing any custom Babel with you. So like the spec says that add-ons publish JavaScript that is uses ES latest features only. Mm -hmm. And uh, so like nothing non-stand, like you don't, like if you want to decorators, that's fine, compile them out first, right? Like mm -hmm. anything that hasn't been finalized or, or that we don't include in this spec, we can choose which ones we include. There's actually- I see. Right? So this is all happening as part of stage one? This uh, is the first step I mean that you're Well, yeah, so the, um, so I'm, well, so stage one is the compatibility layer that takes today's add-ons mm -hmm. and compiles them up to the new format. Mm -hmm. So what that is gonna do is, for example, like add-ons today do carry custom Babel configs mm -hmm. with them, right? Uh, so that if you're authoring an add-on and you want to use something weird in your code, that's mm -hmm. fine. You, and you, so you end up bringing your own Babel plugins. You end up bringing your actual Babel version because it might be different than the apps, right? So you end up having to have Ember CLI Babel as a de dependency, not a dev dependency. Right. So that brings it into the all the apps that use you right. have to get that. They have to run that compilation step. They have that's to have many copies of Babel. Right. Um, so that's not allowed in this new format. So the way the compatibility layer handles it is it will actually, um, for every add-on that we find that we, you need, that you're depending on, we will be like, oh, does it have any custom Babel plugins? If it does, we're gonna actually just run all those plugins across its code first. I see. Right. We don't run the full like preset env. Right. We, we leave all the other stuff in. You resolve custom Babel code, you resolve these macros, so well, that so everyone's the, code looks the same. Yeah, so the macros we should kind of push to the okay. later stage. The um, 
certainly when we're talking compatibility, nobody's using them yet anyway. But the point is more that your custom AST transforms also, your custom Babel transforms, we run all those first so that now you're in a standard lingua franca. And for the templates, that's, that's still handlebars that are not compiled because mm -hmm. you can't compile till the end because you want to compile for the specific Ember version. Right? Like if, you're, mm -hmm. if you're going to publish to NPM, you can't compile your templates first. You want to leave handlebars. That's the stable language that you really want on NPM. Whereas the like the compiled format changes, and handlebars is still statically analyzed. Totally, so, totally, so exactly. Right? That's exactly right. So you you compile out the out all those custom transforms, mm -hmm. and then we also you know rearrange the files format in the add-ons so that the modules all align with node module resolution. Right. So, like what would have been slash add-on slash index.js is now just your index.js, mm -hmm. so the node will resolve it correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and where there's stuff that needs to go in the app tree for people who know about add-on development. Again, this, all of this stuff, add-on development being inaccessible and having these weird quirks is one of the problems we're also solving here, right? Mm -hmm. Like the fact that you need to think about app tree and add-on tree and this stuff, we wanna make that not be a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, for compatibility, like even a V2 add-on needs the ability to effectively copy stuff into the app's own package, right? That's what, if you think mm -hmm. about what the app tree does, that's what it does. It's mm -hmm. like. I have some code or some styles, it does both, that need to be um, conceptually they live in the app's own like NPM package, its own module namespace, right? That's how, that's why when you make an add-on and you generate a component, you get this little re-export in the app folder, right? That's actually to make it so that when somebody consumes your add-on, if, if that add-on tries to resolve like my app name slash components slash power select, it finds it because it's in my it's in the app's own namespace because that's that's how all the module resolution works. Um, like fixing that in Ember, it ties into like the template imports work, and that's I mean, earlier attempts at solving that were were baked into proposals like module unification. Like the leading stuff now is really around template imports to solve this problem. Um, anyway, so the point is that we compile all of the. Um, we compiled down the app so that it's now just a normal NPM library. Like the, the, the paths to the modules all line up with regular NPM conventions. We, we're in a lingua franca of the handlebars and the babble. The special features- So that removes like, a lot of the code from the Ember CLI build that traditionally was yeah, right, handling these right. kinds of one-off. Right, like well, and then, yeah. So some of the stuff like the app tree still has to be there. So you can have a, like the V2 format allows you to have a folder and then a key in package.json that says, I have these files that need to be copied into the app when you build me. But now, now it's actually just like a static key in package.json you can mm -hmm. see and do it once. Um, and so, they, but this is an example of glimmerization and how do you safely build a new system that's a, that's a gradual step? Mm -hmm. Because this whole uh, first stage encompasses all the complexity of the old system and then at the end of the stage one build, you have a complete set of packages that are all in the new world format, which is designed to be easy to work with. And so all the rest of the code going forward you immediately are able to work in the new happy world and you don't have to wait for, like it's, you don't end up having all these places where you're like, well, there's the new code path and the old code path, but we need to support both still. Mm -hmm. You've pushed all that complexity into stage one and stage one can get as complex as it wants to. It could be as slow as it wants to because the goal is to not have it forever. I mean, or like, I mean you'll run it for almost ever, right. but an, if, any, if any given add-on is going down a slow or sad or broken path there, then it's, it's like not now, going now to it's time to upgrade that add-on to v2 right. format, and when it publishes natively to npm as v2 format, it does nothing in stage one. Right. Right. So, so the, and then the stage two stuff, you're in a world that's much more constrained. 
Yeah, and so in stage two, it's a much simpler problem now because all of your add-ons are NPM resolvable with regular NPM rules. Um, so anything that's a, you know, like the com their components, their helpers, their services, all that stuff is just sitting there on disk in places that you can find with regular resolution. Which is why I see how it relates to the template imports. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and then so in stage two uh, is where we basically take an Ember app and a collection of add-ons that are in this nice to consume format. And we compile out all the Emberisms until we get to just, it is just HTML, JavaScript, CSS, that if you if if the, the stage three isn't supposed to have to know anything special about Ember. It's just in stage three, you actually use Webpack or Parcel or Rollup as the, like I mean, plugged into this system as, mm -hmm. a, as a kind of a plugin. Um, to take what is just a collection of HTML files that refer to JavaScript files, some of which are modules, some of which are scripts, CSS files, right? And just optimize that, right? And so you can even have, um, we, I, we don't have this as a thing you can run, but in principle you can, and it'd be fun to do. You can have like a, a just use the platform third stage that doesn't do much at all because the output of stage two is actually spec compliant stuff. Like it's HTML that refers to, to like uh, you know, script type equals module. Here's my JavaScript, and all the th you know things that are Ember specific are actually all compiled out by the time you get to that point. So what I mean by that is, um, out of the box, when you try Embroider on an app, we give you if you don't do change any settings, you get the most compatible settings that give you like emulate the existing Ember CLI behaviors. So that means things like um, all the components that we find in your app, they're going to get into the build, for example, because like there are cases that are very dynamic that maybe you expected it to be there, right? So, so if you install composable helpers, you're going to have all of them. 30 helpers. Correct. So that's the default out of the box mode. But what gives you that is actually um, actual compatibility code that's running to go and find all that stuff. And basically, like when we compile in stage two, we're emitting JavaScript that says like, you know, define my app slash helpers slash LTE, one of, the, one of the composable helpers, right? as like require this file right mm -hmm. and that is basically so like now that's just stuff that's like stuff that webpack for example understands and knows how to package that up and then it'll still it's still plugged into the runtime system because we called the the window define to get it into embers loader right? mm -hmm. and so we do that for all of them by default mm -hmm. so but then to get the nicer behavior where you don't use get all the unused ones you just turn off that code and so so you turn on the option called static helpers when you're ready to try that in your like basically like the, uh, the adoption path is you first you get embroider in and you see like does it build and maybe it doesn't maybe we got bugs maybe you have an add-on that's doing a really weird thing that we can't statically analyze and you, we work you work through that you get to that point and now once you once you're working there then you're like okay let's try to turn on static helpers mm -hmm. that's actually a really safe optimization most of the time because it's actually very hard to dynamically invoke a helper mm -hmm. there's not a helper helper like the component helper mm -hmm. um so most of the time that just works so, so Embroider's actually looking at your templates? Yeah, so I didn't get to that yet, but yes. So Embroider's template compiler... Um, because we don't have template imports today, so there's a lot of implicit resolution going on. Correct, but the implicit resolution is, is still static most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Exactly, so it does that, and it actually compiles the templates into JavaScript modules that have import statements. So uh, That's all code in Embroider? Yeah. Wow, right. is that so, hard? No, I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> Sounds hard. It was sounds hard. <laughs> it sounds hard. You want to go try to do that? Yeah. <laughs> sounds hard. It's no, it's not so bad. It's like it was actually kind of. Uh, I mean, this gets to your point about um, making sure you're communicating the value of a project clearly. But 
you know, the vast majority of the work was get is actually the stage one piece. It's like yeah. getting all of the existing stuff into a position where you can then have like manipulate it very powerfully. That is most of that has been most of the attention the work. work. Yeah. yeah, and so, but once you do that, like things like then um, doing this in in build time resolution of all your helpers and components, they're like small extensions. They were. It was stuff that I actually put off doing because I was like, I know that's easy once I've done the grunt work. I see. So it was like, I'll keep solving compatibility problems and do the grunt work. But then I realized, okay, like even though there's more of those, and there's mm -hmm. like a long tail of things to fix mm -hmm. there. It's time to go and do the, the mm -hmm. more fun features right. to communicate the value. Right. So right. like, but doing that was a very small increment on top of this, like implementing cool. uh, the static helpers. So we've got static helper resolution, static component resolution. Yeah, that's the stuff you got to talk about, man, because that's yes. like... So that all works. Starting at the end. I mean, why do I yeah, care as an right, Ember exactly. developer? Exactly. That's why I care. That's a yeah. good question is what, yes. what are the things that, yeah. as an Ember developer, what is this going to unlock for me? Sure, exactly. So it, it already unlocks. By the unlocks way, if you try to stand up from your seat before two and a half hours, you might get zapped. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I was actually thinking it depends how much, how much time and, and uh, setup we want to do, but like. If you have an Ember app and you wanted to spend 10 minutes and see if it builds with Embroider, it might just, and then you could actually use these features. Like we could do it today if you wanted to, but it's pretty cool. Um, so the things that you can turn on, right? So I would describe the path as like first. So the README does explain how to try it out. It's like you change a couple. You add three, you add three packages, and they're three because there's the three build stages. They're actually in, they ship as separate packages. Uh, I'll say like as a preface. Uh, we, we do want this to become the standard thing in Ember CLI, and when it is, it should just work like Ember CLI does. Like, there's nothing to, there's nothing. You're not going to have configured. to learn about the three yeah, stages of embroidery. Correct, exactly. It's that's that's really it's important that those are good APIs, but they're good APIs for people contributing to Ember CLI, right? They're not right. something we expect all the every app to learn about. But to like at this stage to to try it out, you're like you're going down the next level and try and like plugging it in, right? So you add three packages. So there's Embroider Compat is that first stage that understands how to take all your existing add-ons and compile them forward. Uh, Embroider Core is the second stage that takes, knows how to take a collection of very of now V2 formatted add-ons plus your app and compile out all the Emberisms until you get something that's just JavaScript, right? And then stage three takes just JavaScript and optimizes it. And our, the stage three that's implemented right now is Webpack-based. Right. At that point, it seems like that's the least amount of you can leverage most of the community work in yes, larger exactly. JavaScript ecosystem exactly. there. And because that is totally the that's point. The point. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's totally the point. And so most of, like, if you look at the code in the Embraider Webpack package, most of what's there is actually just um, making it, like, Webpack's not very HTML-oriented for its entry points. Parcel's more HTML-oriented. That'd be a good one to do, try next. It would actually probably mean less code. The format that we've, I've established as the kind of standardized stage two output is HTML-oriented because it gives us more power. Like, the entry points are HTML, and then they could refer to JavaScript and CSS and things like that. But um, can you elaborate just a little bit? Are you basically saying like you want to treat an index HTML file as the bootstrap for your application because that because it is right? it is because when you run it, that's what happens, right? So yes, it's like you want to tell the the third, the final stage optimizer like. This is my this is my main function yeah. is to my main function is for a browser to load up index.html yes. exactly to follow script tags exactly. to follow link tags that's what turns into the pull based system <laughs> yes exactly exactly so that becomes the root of the pull based system right and it can support as many index.html files as you want and mm -hmm. you know and because the, in the JavaScript we support both static and dynamic imports across modules you can structure the thing it, like that format becomes very flexible and so you know we don't want to 
it, the point is that by the end of stage two, you're not, no, nothing that's Ember specific is still in there. The, the, like Webpack doesn't need to learn what an engine is, for example, mm -hmm. or it doesn't need to know what an in repo add-on is because all that got compiled out to just like, well, I have like, I'm going to do an import or I'm going to do a dynamic import of a lazy engine. But all of that is just, just a JavaScript, JavaScript module, right? which might have its own imports, yeah. which can be followed. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah, so the, uh, so anyway, so that you, you add these three so packages, right, okay, yeah, those three getting packages. back to the actual yeah. experience, right? Yeah. So like it would be the, the compat for the first stage, the core for the second stage, and Embroider Webpack for the third stage. And then um, you're changing like two lines in your Ember CLI build file. And you can, the typical nice thing to do is actually have, use a conditional there, like have a, make an environment variable be like, Turn embroider on. Yes. Mm. If 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 you're not using embroider, just return app to tree like you always did in that file at the end. But if you are, you actually just like you basically pass that app instance into embroider and get a tree out and return that instead. So it's small. And there's a place there to pass in options, but initially you don't need to pass any options. So then you can run your build and hopefully it works. If it doesn't, it's mostly because there is like still some things add-ons do that we can't quite analyze. Um, and like you know, there's a long tail of add-ons that. Some of them are doing things that are just strictly broken. Uh, some of them are doing things that are were, were legal before but are not now. Uh, but so in order to not block people, we have a pretty good system of um, basically compatibility shims you can put on top of any add-on to fix the things that are bad about it. Because like, it's usually a very small amount of stuff. There's like, oh, there's like this one file that it dynamically tries to load that we yeah. didn't see that it was needed. So if you just like declare that it also needs this one file, everything works. Yeah. Well, let's get to the good stuff because you keep yeah. going back to compatibility stuff. So what if it all works? So what should yeah, I so, expect? So if it all What's works, the point? The next, what, what does yeah, it so do exactly, for me? Exactly. So right, right out of the box, you actually get some uh, nice behaviors right away, which is like... Um, well, you like won't have the, those the, 20 unused... Um, helpers from composable well, there, helpers. So you need to flip a switch. If so, you flip so, the static so, switch, yeah. yeah. So the so the, the kind of like yeah. First is like make see it makes it see if it works. Right? Yep. And at that point, it's probably like, um, at that point, it's probably hasn't done much for you yet. But now you're really close to getting to flip some switches and get right. the exciting stuff. So and you should like, just feel better because should you feel better in some way because like like module resolution is probably going to be more stable in the future, or I'm going to have less bugs due to like modules stomping each other or that's all like those are the switches I mean, well yeah i mean so you're ge already getting some benefits in terms of for example right like the webpacks def default production builds do like roll up like hoisting uh, as an optimization mm -hmm. among, like if it notices that a module is internally used only by some other family of modules it'll just like compile it out right like so anything you get some of that stage stuff three thing can optimize, tool can yeah. optimize on its own yeah. given a set of HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. You'll yeah. get those you get things. get that already. Yeah. And then, and then, like as I said, uh, turning on something like static help. Well, so actually, the first thing I would turn on is there's a there's a flags for um, so all your add-on trees, all your add-ons that are exposing like just plain old JavaScript that's that typically gets consumed because you actually import it. But like the add-on tree. Um, in a classic in a classic Ember add-on, right? You've got an app folder and an add-on folder. And it turns out like almost everything out of the add-on folder actually gets an explicit import that would pull it into your app, right? Like the components and helpers are in the app tree and that's how they actually get found. Like they get found using the classic resolver and it only finds things in the app tree. All the stuff in the add-on tree is almost always consumed directly by real static imports. So it's very rare to dynamically resolve stuff in there. So there's a, so because it's rare, you can usually you can flip the switch that says, okay, um, don't force any of that stuff into my build. Like, 
by default for Mac compatibility, we're going to find all every file that's in an, in the add-on folder of your classic add-ons equivalent, right? Like, and make sure they end up in the build. You turn that off. Uh, so basically, you, you flip the switch that says, okay, static add-on trees, um, mm-hmm. and now hopefully that works. Uh, usually it does. If it doesn't, there's like one or two add-ons that, that they were using a thing but didn't declare it clearly. Like mm-hmm. as an example, uh, something that I hit recently, the Ember Metrics add-on, the way it finds its plugins, like it does it dynamically at runtime. And so mm-hmm. you, you can't know until runtime mm-hmm. that it actually needs the like the Google Analytics mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So you would have to then, we, there's to keep people from getting blocked, because this is an ecosystem effort, right? Like you don't if if you couldn't take advantage of any of these features till all your add-ons upgraded it would never get done right. right so instead we have a pretty good rules system that lets you say um oh like i see that ember metrics actually needs google analytics right so there's a way to tell embroider about that stuff external to the add-ons and like you know it's intended to get us there and get people moving and once people are moving and trying it that motivates the work to actually go upstream right. and make, like right. fix the things for real so but if you had an add-on that was compatible in that way that had explicit imports, yeah, you'd be able so to turn that. that and then basically, so like, if you never needed, like, the serializer.js exactly. module for Mirage, yes, exactly. you just don't import it, and it's not going to end up in your build exactly. today. And so you get that immediately when you, you turn that on. And so even out of, like, in a um, brand-new Ember New app, mm-hmm. uh, you shake out, like, I don't a know, of 10K of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not like a, it's not a ton, but it's there and it yeah. matters. It's and it also things- makes you feel better about if you're doing an add-on or writing a, you know, a, a component mm-hmm. um, library for your company, like you can just oh, add yeah, stuff correct. and it's just exactly. way better like exactly. that than exactly. to go and install a bunch of small libraries. Exactly. So like even with just the static add-on trees, you get um, like a lot, like mixins and stuff definitely shake out because like how do you use a mix and you actually import it, right? And if you right. don't import it, you don't get it. So, so it then the, the next level is... Um, so after you turn that on and it still works, then you turn on static helpers, static components that will now, um, like we, we drop that compatibility code that forces them all into the build. And so they get into the build because we traverse the templates. So at at that point, we're still going to be like finding all your route templates and making sure they're in the build, but then they import their, their components and their helpers. So for the helpers is a very clear case. That's a, like a big win you get right away because as I said, helpers are almost always static anyway. So you turn that on and you're like all of a sudden Ember Composable helpers, you've got three of them and not 30 of them, yep. right? That's a it's huge great. win you get right away. Um, that works great. The And then, you know, there's even stuff in Embraer's test suite that uses some of these examples like Composable helpers. Like it, it builds an app with classic build and Embraer build with these flag on and sees that the set of helpers is, is got way smaller, right? That's so cool. Um, and so with the components one, uh, ends up being slightly more challenging because we do have these dynamic things people can do with them, right? So you can use the component helper to at runtime, like look up an arbitrary component. Um, it turns out for the most part, what people do with that is still stuff we can analyze, um, but it, sometimes it needs a little bit of help. So this is again where the, there's, a, there's a rule system that helps with this. And the rules can, are even shareable in the sense that we could bake some directly into Embroider or we, can have, we could choose to eventually move them to third party, like another library. But the idea being that like we know, for example, that very popular add-on like Ember Power Select, which also uses uh, basic dropdown, has it, it's deliberately very powerful because it lets you pass in components to customize lots of parts of itself. It's got mm-hmm. like six different component arguments it takes, right? Um, so by itself, when you analyze its templates, you just see like component helper invoking some arbitrary runtime value, and you're like, I can't know for sure if this is safe. Like, did this component get into my build? I don't know. So out of the box, when you turn on the static component stuff, um, you you'll 
if, if you didn't have any rules in place, again, like Embroider already brings with it rules for well-known add-ons like that. Mm -hmm. But if it didn't have any rules for the, that example, it'd be like, hey, warning, you've got like a dynamic component helper here. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I can't tell you for sure if it's gonna work. And you could like, it is just a warning. You can move, you can charge ahead and like maybe your app will crash or maybe it won't when right. you get to that. Um, but to fix it, there's just, you can declare, um, there's a couple very basic patterns that repeat over and over again in the add-on ecosystem. One is that, um, like the components you're the components you're evoking dynamically were arguments that you got, and statically we can't necessarily see that because it runs through arbitrary JavaScript. Like it could go through computed, you could have defaults, all these things. So you have that's a, a rule you would declare to say actually like this thing I'm invoking that was an argument I was given. I, whoever passed my trigger component, that's what I'm invoking. So when you, you tell Embraer that rule, it actually moves the warning outward to the, your callers. Mm. So when they pass something in as trigger. Um, if they're they going to be told, you it, need to let Embroider know what's the possible values here. Yeah, that way, power select doesn't have to. Right, and sometimes they, it actually just works out because if they're if they're passing like trigger equals a string, it's a literal string. Right. We know what that means. Right. Like we can look it up right then. Right. And then we're done. Do, do you like do you do you see the yeah. tr the key trigger and you're just like okay, I'm going to include this component that's passed yes, in here. Yes, exactly. Because exactly. you know how trigger the argument is used on. We this know that it's used within, as a component exactly. Right. So if they we're passing the string literal we can find it. If they were passing component helper with a string little argument, we could find it. Or maybe for them, it was also an argument they got and they could, you can make a new rule and pass the, right. the buck, right? right? And another, the similar example is like with, if you yield components, um, like that'd be the same thing. You can make a rule that says, I yield components, this is a component, but like I'm basically certifying that it's a component that I've, like it's loaded because it's in, in your own template, if you like yield a hash of component with string literals, we can they they got included there. We know they're safe, so like you can just declare. So you safe. need Embraer basically thirty thousand foot view. Embraer needs to build a whitelist of components that need to be included, and it can infer a lot of those from things like templates and some of the stuff. Sometimes yeah. you might have to provide it, but once yeah. if it does have a complete list. Yeah, exactly. Then, so so then now you've got static component resolution. So yep. now all your add-ons that you're using and your app code, any unused component doesn't get used. Uh, doesn't get in the build, right? Yep. You stop using it, it's not there, and that's great. Um, and again, if you're also using um, like imports from NPM, whether that's via, so in Embroider, it's just a feature of the whole build. It's just like understood that you can import from NPM. To polyfill it in existing apps, you need to ember, uh, ember auto import. Um, when you, either of those cases now, right, if you think about, if you drop the component that imports that library, you, don't, you drop the whole library because it's mm -hmm. all following the graph, mm -hmm. right? So then the next cool thing that you get, once you have static components and helpers, is that um, all your components and helpers are getting included because they're included by some route template. So we have route splitting. So you can now, so then you say, okay, I would like to actually just split out some of my routes. I would like to choose split points and say, for example, um, I have an admin route with like a bunch of child routes under it that most people don't need. So let's split admin out of my main bundle. Let's make it lazy. And that's basically because you'd still need something like the dynamic import function, right? The so, import function, well, what is so it called? Dynamic imports? Yeah, dynamic import uh, is, yes. Yeah, so that's what we're gonna compile to at the output of stage two before we go to Webpack. Uh -huh. Webpack's gonna see a dynamic import. So I should, you know, you can author in your app if you wanted to, if you're, if you're gonna use Embroider and you're just gonna only use Embroider, like most, everything I've described so far is stuff that's still compatible with the existing builds. The point is that people can like, you don't have to, you don't like choose when to make the leap, right? It, it actually, all the things we're talking about, you can keep, you can build your app with Classic Gamer CLI, you can build your app with Embroider and hopefully get a smaller, faster app, but like you didn't do anything that wasn't backward compatible. Mm -hmm. right? um, 
if you're only going to build with embroidery, don't care. You can actually just start authoring with dynamic import anywhere you want to, and it will do the right thing. So that's what you would do today if you were starting a new app. I mean, granted, you understand the system. Sure, but sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could operate, you could build with these flags enabled and be working under these constraints. Yes, that's right. That's right. Anyway, and that works. Uh, so you can author, you can use dynamic import. That's fine. It does mean dealing with the asynchrony yourself, right? Like dynamic import is a promise for the module, not the module. So like it's not always a drop in if you're used to getting things statically and synchronously, um, but you can totally do that if you want to. The other point though is that because of our convention, so if, as long as you're doing conventional routing stuff, m which mostly means like you're not overriding the render hooks and things to, to pick like to make route A actually use template B and mm -hmm. weird stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. as long as you're not doing that stuff, the route splitting will be able to do all this for you. So, so you just declaratively say split at routes and you list some names or regexes and that's it. Uh, there's like so a, you won't change the way the imports look. You won't return an import from a model hook or something like that because... No, you don't have to do that uh, because we know, because the things... because it, We all know of the, the asynchronous lookup, boundaries yes, based on the Yes, all of the, the lookup is already Ember, right? Like... Who like when like what imports your route template? Well, like Ember does, right? Ah. So we can we can then synthesize when we do the compile. We can mm. say, oh, okay, they chose to split at this point, so we're gonna take we're gonna find the you know the, the the template for that route, the actual route file for that route, and the controller for that route if they all exist, and and it's children because they yep. split all the children, yep. and we're gonna instead of compiling so. In the, if you weren't splitting, we were going to compile them into the main entry point where yep. we, we just say like define this define you know my app slash routes slash blah as require this file right like that's where we would have done the, the like force it into the build like to get compatibility, um, but instead of putting that there, we actually like make a separate file for these routes now put it there instead, and we have a like a little function in the main entry point that is like load my lazy bundles with the dynamic import statements in it for each of those bundles so that so that in user land you don't have to be writing those correct those, that's where the the dynamic import function yeah Damn, that's pretty cool right so and this works and it's deployed at, like uh so ember observer has been like a good open source app to try all that stuff on yeah. um em beta ember observer is deployed with full route splitting oh cool. i didn't change anything in ember observer it's like I didn't pick it because it was like an easy case. Like it's an existing app with like quite a little, lot of history, mm -hmm. more features than are obvious because it has a whole admin section, mm. and uh, and it uses a lot of add-ons. Like it was because it's deliberately like trying to dog food the add-on ecosystem stuff. It actually uses a ton of features. So um, and it worked uh, with no changes to the app. So the the one change you make to turn on this routing feature is there is an embroider router package which is a very tiny uh, extension to the basic Ember router, mostly just so that we can, when you're about to enter a route, that's when we get, run, get to run some code to be like, did we load it? Let's load it. Uh, and it just actually stole code out of the engines package. Like it does the same thing engines do. So the, it's like a, so to turn on route splitting, the, the change is like you add embroider router. Instead, in your router.js file, you import from a new thing, the embroider provided one, not the Ember provided one. But you don't change anything about how you set, set up your routes. It was just the import statement you changed. And then in your embroider config in your Ember, Ember CLI build file, you say split out, split out routes, and it works. Cool. Is there, um, what, what happens while the, the bundle's lazily loading? Is there like a loading template that gets rendered or? Um, that's a good question. Does we hit the loading t route? Yeah, I guess it would. It would go through the same paths that you would. So it doesn't, um, it's, it's not parallelized with like the data loads. And Ember's own routing data loads are not really parallelized, right? So they, they serialize right. down, they waterfall down. So this is still in that mold. Um, 
it this but it's like a block it's a blocking render in a sense it's blocking the page load and in, in the same way that a model hook would it takes a long time yeah does. yeah that's what so right. you would expect you kind of expect that would be your first guess yeah, that would be my mental yeah model. I, I yeah, have, yeah yeah that's a good, actually a good point i haven't like gone and tested that but i'm pretty sure that would work and um you'd have like the link is active class or is activating or whatever basically all the stuff that helps you build yeah. like the, the loading ui right and this did like i said this took advantage of the exact same pattern that the engine lazy engine stuff does so that we know it basically works with the existing stuff cool. out there um and like obviously um like i've been i've been telling people for a while like Yes, lazy engines are painful because they're not really built for lazy loading. Yeah, that's, that's like a side gonna, effect. I was going to say we, we just talked about this at EmberConf, and basically you, this is a better solution to the problem of code splitting because while um, some people have used engines for that, really the purpose engines was designed for was to help big teams work yes. on separate parts of the app without exactly. stepping on each other's toes, having good isolation and boundaries. Yeah, and those people boundaries kind of, really hurt when there's not I, when they don't match real organizational boundaries. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But people or I guess. The, the route level code splitting was kind of shoehorned in or it became like a is like a strange side effect of engines that's not really wasn't part of why it was built and so it's not actually I if mean, you need yeah, route level right. code splitting right. you shouldn't just in, start using engines to Correct. accomplish that yeah exactly it's better solved by this which it's is definitely better solved by this because you don't have to make any changes also yes, but it's also exactly. Exactly. the right tool for the job right exactly so it's um it's really good it's very gratifying to see it out like as i was saying like most of the scut work was actually building up the Getting all the ducks in a row so that you're built in, and statically analyzable. And once you've done that, now all this stuff is very—it's a very small amount of code where it's very easy to extend and do these features. Just don't forget: just because it's a small amount of code doesn't oh, mean sure. you should talk about a small amount. You correct. Should, this correct. is like this is like the most important stuff. Definitely, so definitely. Absolutely. I'm just gonna keep hammering on that. You Absolutely. Know? Yes. Sorry, this is the Embermap podcast. We don't have any punches here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. No. So I'm very excited about this stuff. It works really good. Um, like I said, there's. So the status of the project is really like people should absolutely try it out. Yeah. It's designed to be un unintrusive so that um, you should be able to try it out. Even if your app is someone when that you have to be conservative with and you're not ready to commit, trying it like with a feature flag, for example, or making it run on CI only, right, is actually a very easy thing to do. If you wanted to just um, make sure you're staying compatible with this future world. I see. Because uh, it's What like, about add-ons too, like running Mirage against using it? To build Mirage or like to have CI uh, run yeah, a version so, of right. it so and that's let a it good fail, but then I could just see. Yeah, so that's a great question. That leads me to kind of what is my next steps, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, so I mean, it does work. At, like if you're in an add on and you want to just build it with Embroider. So what that means is really you're building the dummy app and the test suite yep. with Embroider. Yep. Uh, that does work. Um, we test that in the test suite of Embroider that like we do support dummy apps. We had to do special things for them because they're too weird. Yeah. Again, like compile out the weird embraces, yes. right? And, um, so, but I think that, and that would not be a bad thing for add-ons to do, but I actually would rather, if we're going to ask add-on authors to do things, I would actually rather get them onto the V2 format, format natively. And so my next step is to get that, the draft spec that we have in the, there's a spec in the Embroider repo, you can go find it. It's like spec.md for what the new format is. I see. But, um, there's like a few, loose, there's a few loose ends that I want to wrap up very soon and make an RFC out of it. Um, the reason I would, so like that really has to be the next step because we don't want to tell add-on authors to start publishing this new format to NPM unless we actually know what the new format yeah. is. So, but it's actually quite close because most of the core of it are very stable already. Like we've, 
been going long enough now. I mean, so Embroider's been being built for like more than half a year now. This isn't a new thing. And like apps are, like big apps have been tested against it and lots of add-ons have been tested against it. The core of what this format is is very stable now. It is time to do an RFC. Um, That's great to hear, by the way. I think that was just having not known the history of it at yeah. all. I'm sure people who follow like all the repos and stuff know, but I just, I didn't. Well, and that yeah, was... it's initially it w- I was deliberately not advertising it. Yeah. Partly because until it reached a certain level of success and maturity, I did not want to suck all the oxygen from the rest of yeah. Ember CLI development. Yeah. Right? Um, yep. I think it, now it is mature enough and appropriate enough that like it's, You're convinced it's, it's where we want to do new yeah. things. But it was early early on it was just me trying to prove that it would work. Yeah. And I deliberately didn't want to um, come and stomp on all the other stuff going on. Right. Yeah. So now it's appropriate to, to like tout it and, and market it and teach people about it. Um, at the very beginning I was deliberately it was it was open source from the beginning. I didn't like hide it. Um, and I've been talking with lots of like, you know, the whole MRC like core team knew about it. We talked about it. Um, framework core team knew about it. We talked about it. It wasn't like a secret, but it also wasn't a thing that I wanted. Uh, like I don't it wasn't ready for people to use, and it, it was like it did stomp on other ongoing work, right? So like, like it makes certain work obsolete. Yes. if it becomes adopted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and you know that was a conscious decision uh, to just like I, I think I see a better architecture. I could yeah. do this. Um, I'm gonna. We certainly, I certainly talked about that architecture with other people and taught and, you know, like tried to guide and it was, it's like hard to explain some of these things. So it was, I was like, okay, I have to show what I mean right? and, and go and do it first. So that's what I went off, like went off into the wilderness to do and come back. Um, was there a, was there like a specific problem you were facing in one of your apps that, that was like, I need this, to like, I need this? this thing to exist? Well, yeah, I guess that's, yes. Um, so uh, a lot of this grew out of me doing Ember Auto Import. So when I did Ember Auto Import, um, that, was very, that was very motivated by direct community feedback when we did the first big round of like, hey, like everybody make your blog posts about what you want everybody to do in 2018, right? We did this whole community road mapping process, which turned out to be very useful and valuable. And um, everybody was like, oh, I just need to be able to import from NPM. And I mean, I, at an intellectual level, I knew that was the thing people wanted, but the, like the, the, you got nerd sniped, Ted. Yeah. It's easy to, <laughs> right. Right. It, no, it's easy to, uh, forget once, which we're all very thankful for. Yes. Yes. Once you're, once you know all of the paper cuts, it's hard to feel yes. them. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that opened your eyes a little bit to some of the pain points. Yeah. And so I realized that I already had a lot of the machinery and like, I, I had, I had already made Ember Browserify long before. It was kind of solving a similar problem, but it was different, right? Like just different enough that, and it, Browserify was just an older infrastructure to build it on. Yeah. And um, so I was like, okay, like I can see how I solved this problem actually quite quickly. And, um, and it worked great and people liked it and it solved a big chunk of the problem. And as soon as you have these capabilities um, to like pull things in on demand, you start to say like, okay, well now I would really love to be able to like actually propagate that and say like, 
I want to auto import an add-on. I want to dynamic import an add-on. I mean, the pull, the the pull versus push thing made it very clear to me. Like mm -hmm. that, to yeah. me, that's like the whole thing. Yes. Basically. Right. Like exactly. That, and so once you see that, you're like, wait, if it was all pull based, it's like, boom, yeah. you just so many things just fall out of that. Exactly. And and auto import <laughs> is pull based for third party things, but it can't do the Ember pieces. And and the reason because the dynamic is, pieces. Yeah. The, the reason it can't is precisely because of like that the lack of the embroider first stage that gets us there. Right. right. So. That's kind of what led me down the path. In terms of what real apps need, it totally is a thing that real apps need and want to do, like code splitting yeah. and tree shaking. People care about that. Pay as you go. Yeah. Usage um, of libraries. Exactly. It really helps you not have to worry about, it lets you design better libraries, right? It's like, as we've talked about in terms of coming up with how, what, what would be the best ergonomics for Ember uh, animated imports, right? Like, right. if you could take for granted certain kinds of pay, pay go. Right. Then you can design better, eight better libraries, right. and you can right. keep more batteries included libraries, and not worry about having extra stuff. Right. right. So all of that is very good, and uh, also, you know, in my so uh, you can also tweet that Ember has route splitting. Correct. Which yes. is a great thing to be able to tweet. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's just it's 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 closing a gap. It's closing a, a hole in our capabilities. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. a thing. I mean. It's a thing that I hope Ember people are very excited about. I yeah. am definitely. I think people are very it's, excited about it. Of course, it's like it's a parody thing. It's not a jump ahead thing. Right. right? But that's fine. It's good. I, I, honestly, the the thing that I think is is worth touting and bragging about is that, um, you know, like existing apps that you know uh, that are, you know, not not legacy code but revenue code. Right? Yeah, like yeah, the code yeah. that actually makes yeah. money. Uh, that were written long before code splitting yeah. was really a thing. Get this feature. I right? think like, that's gonna con that's gonna be every year it goes by that has more four, five, six, seven year old apps that are all on the latest Ember version. Yeah. And get the benefit of Ember's conventions, but also have these modern features is just gonna be more and right. more um, of a compelling reason to use something like Ember. And even um, you know, yesterday I was pairing with with a buddy of mine, and we were doing some view development, and we were trying to understand how to do like. Yeah, even just a, a brand new view app with uh, with view router and getting something equivalent to Ember's model hook, mm -hmm. where you have a dynamic route with like a blog post slug, mm -hmm. and um, getting the app to block on fetch, and then when you switch, if you have like a master detail view and you click on the second blog post and you want to like re-render this, it's actually like it's actually pretty confusing. Mm. Like there's not the equivalent of like a model hook. I see. Yeah. Um, you have to like either watch the route or you have to do like um, like a before route transition and then like an, a route update thing and it's mm. like some duplication there. So I still think Ember has tons of, this is, Ember's always been like this trying to think about the whole app from the beginning. Like yeah. you're not just gonna need right. the rendering right. layer, you're gonna need routes and you're gonna need yeah. them have dynamic segments. Exactly. So exactly. It's, the problem is when we don't have a seat at the table because of things like routes exactly. not being part exactly. of it. Exactly. So I think there's still a huge value there if totally. you can keep up with totally. that. And yeah. I love the idea of having like the compatibility layer being where like, Oh, Ember gives you this extra stuff, but then now you're in Webpack land, or mm -hmm. um, you know, um, yeah. Like so you just draw the Ember circle around exactly. a smaller piece of it, exactly. and instead of saying this is all Ember from yes. this to this, exactly. And so you either get it or you don't. Right. Like, there's right. awesome things that you love about it, and then there's things you're missing that you. Yeah, exactly. Don't and have. so it's all about um, letting us. Uh, uh, I mean, it's been a, definitely a theme throughout. Like you know, Octane itself, a big theme is 
things that we had to do ourselves in the past because they literally didn't exist. Right. We don't anymore. Right. right. Like, our, like needing our own object system right. was a thing we absolutely needed. Right. You don't now. That's great. Um, and this is similar. I it's mean, like even we don't have class packaging. properties yes. still. And it's like, there's still some nice things about the object model, but like we're getting the class fields and yes. like that's going right. to finally be the thing. Right. But people don't realize there's like a gap. Yeah, there. I mean the biggest the biggest thing that has been a real um, struggle at the standards level was decorators yeah. because there's I mean if you think about uh, Ember's classic object system it had decorators in the sense that like like DS adder or yeah. computed, computed yep. are ve- are effectively our yep. decorators. Yep. And so we we've had them and needed that like saw the value if they're a thing you definitely need and want. It's not it's not an original invention, right? Like other languages have decorators. Um, it's a thing you definitely need to grow if you're growing these kind of capabilities in a framework. Um, and so it's been a long struggle to get that into the JavaScript of the language and it's getting there. Like there's so many people working so hard on it to get right. consensus and to do it multiple iterations of designs. It has been partly a struggle because there is um, like just there's definitely philosophical differences about JavaScript, the language, and people who have like framework PTSD from other languages not wanting JavaScript to get frameworky. Because mm. it can, like, certainly people have had bad experiences, but that doesn't mean you can't use these things well, also. And Interesting. So, um, Interesting. Like, there is definitely pushback on f- any features that seemed too frameworky uh, for, from just like a certain subject, a subset of JavaScript language people the kinds of things that the ember community values ergonomic wise the things that we're not willing to give up like something equivalent to a decorator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then this other group of people saying like those are the kinds of things we don't want to be in the standard platform yeah like the people wanting to push javascript to be more explicitly a only functional pro- like a functional programming uh, language right like saying i would rather solve that with a functional programming uh, paradigm and it's just realistically, it has to be a multi-paradigm language. All successful languages are multi-paradigm to it, to an extent. Um, you know, to be purely functional is a real extreme position that has never hit mainstream adoption. You're going to break JavaScript if you make it purely functional. Well, correct. It's already not. It's already not right. It's exactly. So it's like. Yeah. What are your options, really? Yes. It's already not. You got to just deal. And so, I mean, I I never doubted that we would eventually find something. We're getting there. Yeah. Uh, the latest spec, and so um, it had it was a little bit of a dilemma because it has taken so long to get the decorators into the language, but we really did want to give people the benefit of like most of most of what we need is already there in the in the JavaScript object system. Mm-hmm. Like using native classes is nice, using native getters, getters is nice, yep. tracked properties and all Amazing. that are great. And so like we had to basically say, all right, decorators are not stable, but we're going to commit to them anyway because. Mostly because we're committing to a specific set of decorators we provide and not saying that like if you write your own crazy decorators, right. they're going to necessarily work in a future Ember app. We don't know if they will, right. but we can commit to like re-implementing our own decorators right. on whatever the future spec is. That's what Chris was telling us about, like the static decorators or like the decorators that are different than just arbitrary. Exactly. And that's the, yeah, so the calls. static one is the new proposal. Exactly. And he's been like working very closely on all that stuff and following it much more closely than me. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah. So, like, I, I brought that up just in the context of so saying that like embroider third stage is the same kind of thing. It's like we had to do our own thing once, but we don't anymore. Like there's actually good general purpose tools in the ecosystem. Let's mm-hmm. use that. And not even commit to one, but to keep an API boundary where in the future we could like pick the next one that isn't even written today, right? I, my hope is that somebody mm-hmm. goes and makes like a pure Rust 
bundling uh, transpiling system that's like a thousand times faster than what we have today, and we can drop that in as our third stage, right? Like that would be amazing. That's pretty so, cool. I, I think Ember users are going to trust us a lot more just knowing that it's not you know a, a, yeah one size fits all solution yes. where where they know that like a question we used to always get was why does Ember use why doesn't Ember use Webpack yeah um, and they're not like asking for like a technical thing they're, they're really like when you unpack that they're getting at like why doesn't ember use the rest of the javascript ecosystem yes exactly yeah there's two ways to interpret that one is like oh these are people who are naive and going with trends and they don't have experience to understand the technical trend another is like what you said which is like wait a second this is just weird like mm -hmm. every other community right. uses this thing yes. or writes classes or whatever and right, um, right, right, right. yeah exactly and obviously like the team the whole core team understands this, they talked about this with the keynote, and it's yeah. great to see the work happening. Totally, um, totally. It, it's also worth, um, like, this comes into just having a, um, like, a balanced and mature view of technology adoption, where it is worth using a thing that has, so, like, there's a lot of warts I could complain about with Webpack. Um, there's, you have to balance that with, like, what you, what you said about being weird or about um, just the fact that even if what Webpack does is quirky, like if it has weird behaviors, for example, in how it packages art libraries, just the fact that it's the thing people use to package libraries means that most library authors probably fix their stuff so it will work in Webpack, right? So like there is totally adoption story stuff, network effect stuff that makes it compelling. It's the same reason you'd use NPM, right? NPM might not be perfect, but it's where all the stuff is. So let's figure out how do you mitigate the, the downsides and the warts for our community by having some basic conventions around it mm -hmm. um, and still get the network effects of adopting a technology that has a lot of effort pouring into it. So, you know, when it comes to Webpack, for example, um, in Embroider, uh, I think it's a perfectly good choice for the third stage, but I don't want to lock us into one choice forever, mm -hmm. right? And so when we pick a, like when we finalize an API for what Ember apps will do, when this is like the default in Ember CLI and you don't look at it, um, I want to make sure that we have, you know, like we're, we're, what we're not going to do is commit to supporting the whole API service of Webpack because then you really are locked into it forever. Mm -hmm. right? uh, instead, it would be like, okay, what are the, like, what is the eighty percent API of what add-ons need to ask for from a third stage packager? Let's expose that in an API that we can actually commit to, mm -hmm. and it's very thin layer up in mm -hmm. front, right? And you want to even make it look like not. It shouldn't look weird or hard to do for somebody who understands how the basic config. App F an app and a, like a, for an app author who wants to inject some custom config, I would never gonna close that door. Um, for an app author, it's actually kind of okay. Like you basically would want to tell them that um, you know you're gonna you might be locking yourself into a particular Ember CLI version if you're doing weirdly custom stuff. Right. But if it's your own app, that's not such a big deal. The, what what is really a big deal and the bigger wart with Webpack configs is that they don't compose out of like a many many authors situation. So you really do want, for Ember add-ons to work as out of the box as they do, you really want them to be able to ask for things from the final stage packager system. And uh, trying to do that in a Webpack world is very, it's not a thing that's, it's not really designed for that. They, there's an assumption, there's assumption in their design that the, the application author controls 100% of the config. Yeah, whereas like you might want to write an add-on that's going to look at some aspect of the final build to generate an asset map, let's say. Yeah, like there's various things you might want to do like that. Yeah. That's one example. Yeah. Or even just making it so that, you know, like TypeScript integration is an Ember add-on that does the right thing. 
you'd really want mm. like that is going to effectively in a webpack world that's going to install a typescript loader and configure it with good defaults that plug into the our builds and our notifications and all that you want to be able to do that in a way that um you know so that users can just still install ember cli typescript mm -hmm. and have it and then if we, if like the next if a future version of ember cli swaps webpack for something that hasn't even been written yet that's better in some way you could all you know we could keep that working right that would be the goal so you don't want if everybody was just emitting if the, if we let the add-on ecosystem start emitting pure webpack config then you're locked in forever right right, right. so right um interesting yeah so it's like um so that's like the remaining work to make it as i said one of my next things is i want to get the the v2 add-on spec as an rfc so that we can get it adopted and yeah let's take a quick break sure i think we might be losing this room we also hack our cameras to be able to <laughs> they like light on fire after 30 minutes oh, yeah. 30 minutes so that's we funny. did some uh, firmware hacking nice nice yeah. I love it. that's great that's great awesome. that's the difference between you and me i hate that stuff i wanted to just <laughs> apple product plug it in don't worry right right no I, yeah i've definitely learned <laughs> i've learned a more balanced approach to that yeah. like honestly I, I think a lot of like what a lot of the the benefit you accrue from being into technology at a like in younger life, like getting into it as a kid or getting yeah. into it as a college student is that you have just this like absurd ability to spend time on stupid things. Yeah. Not even stupid things, but just like things that are not the highest value thing you should be doing right now. Right. right. Like, and <laughs> you're not optim you're not over optimized. You haven't been like capitalism hasn't drilled it into you that you got to optimize that time. It's time is money and all this stuff. Right. So as a kid, also just because like whatever interests you doesn't feel like work and you do a lot of it. Right. So like, you spend crazy amounts of time like regex parking some parsing something with, even though you yeah, can use a library yeah, just, for like, it, just learning tinkering, something. Tinkering and tinkering, whether it's with hardware, whether it's software and uh, all that tinkering time, like you osmose a ton of knowledge when you do it. And it's like, you know, it gets a little into the whole like, how, you know, the I, this has been debunked, but like the 10,000 hours of mastery kind of theory of like, the more time you spend doing something, it actually, you absorb skill. And uh, it's, as an adult, when you try to spend that time, it feels very expensive and hard. Mm -hmm. But as a kid or mm -hmm. like a young adult where you're just playing, it doesn't feel like work. And so you sneak all that experience in. Yeah, it's like when I started programming, I was just like, yeah, you, yeah you're being totally fun. inefficient, but you're just don't care. You're just exactly. hours and hours exactly. having fun. And, and you know, I, that's actually advice I do give to even working developers, which is, um, there's a very concrete way in which you can do a thing that feels inefficient but isn't, and that is like when you hit a bug d at the next layer down, like in mm. your library that you're using, in your framework that you're using, um, it feels like it's probably not worth your time to debug it. Like you're just, it's not my app, it's not my code, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. um, but I, that's like the shortest path to leveling up dramatically in your mm. capabilities is the ability to do that. And you get better at it quite quickly if you do it enough. It's like, I found a bug in the next layer down. Let's actually debug what's going on. And the first time it'll be hard and you're like navigating somebody else's code and you don't know what's going on. But um, like that practice is what makes you level up dramatically in your development skill and being able to, uh, so like on the first, like on an individual bug instance, it's probably not worth the time, but the, the ROI of that time in terms of your skills is totally worth it because like the next time and the next time and the next time you hit that bug, you'll get faster at it to the point where 
on an individual bug that you hit, it's actually still worth your time to fix it, to like even at least understand it, if not fix it, because you you can traverse the other people's code so much faster now. Interesting, right? That's really great. Also, too, it could be like in another language, like yeah, and that's yeah. yeah, that's right, and that's how you learn. Like, reading code really does matter. Like, you learn by reading, you learn by imitation. Um, but how do you read code is a thing that nobody teaches you, and it's not linear. It's not like reading a book. Right, so it seems like the kind of thing is way better over time in small chunks, especially for things that you're motivated by. Exactly, it has to be, you need a motivation, and you, then you follow the threads, right? And that's how we really read code, and that's why we read code. You, you read it because you're trying to fix something or you're trying to understand something very specific, and you need that motivation. Like, code reading has to always be motivated. Code reading without a motivation is very amorphous. I don't know how you would even do it, hmm. right? So, but when you happen to have that motivation, that's actually a huge opportunity. You, mm -hmm. you, I've thought about whether you could even design a kind of a teaching resource mm, that uh, errors and levels. Yeah, by, by finding those go. motivations, right? Yeah. Like I, I could imagine actually curating, um, like, you know, having some heuristics to try to find examples and then curate them of like what was a PR that was made in a popular open source thing this week that, you know, like, the actual code changes were like not giant. They're they're like a digestible amount of changes. People had an there was like an interesting amount of discussion about it, and like and then it got merged, right? Like if you find examples like that, and then like you look at okay, what was the like what was the bug or feature that motivated this? Let's start with that bug or feature with this code base before right. the change. Um, Let's use that as our teaching example, right? Because now you have a motivated, um, you have that motivation to right. go read foreign code that's not yours. Right. Maybe it's a new language. Maybe it's a new framework. And uh, and dive into it and like how does an experienced programmer approach that? Right. That's like I think that's, that's a, really yeah. good teaching. Yeah. There's there's two examples that that kind of you just remind me of. One is like have you ever seen those things where there's like a failing test suite and your job is to get the test yeah. suite. The Ruby yeah. has one. Right. Uh, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Something something. Yeah. I don't remember the name. I think it's yeah. like Ruby cones. Ruby cones. cones or maybe that was Kata like, or something like that. Um, but those are always great because yes. they force you to dive everywhere. Yes. And then the other is, um, I know there's like the capture the flag, oh, like yeah. security those challenges, yes. where those, totally. I feel like those really force you oh, to go learn that. something. Those are very fun, yes. Yeah, they force you to just learn these weird like things that you'll never come across. Right, exactly. so you have to like level up through exactly. these. Like, and actually, both of those complement each other because um, the one problem with the failing test suite approach, like it, it's a very good approach. I like it a lot. It is how we do most of our work as programmers is like there's a thing that doesn't work let's keep working till it till it's fixed right um the problem is um you will you you do plateau if you're operating in that mode because there's a lot of problems that can be like once once the code runs correctly you're done but there's other but like there's lots of other programs where that's not the end right like it does you don't it doesn't force you to get to learn taste and design of apis and things and uh, and it doesn't force you. Also, you don't have all such a neatly failing case. You're, you're saying it like it's green. You're done. Right. But you're not learning. Like, did I do the boundary right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And and not and so doing the boundary right is like you know it's about learning style and judgment and taste. And so it's easy for programmers to fall into that. It works, so I'm done. Mm. And like even even people who traditionally teach TDD will. They, they try to tell you it should be red, green, refactor, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to go do the, the step where you mm -hmm. make it nice, uh, but it's easy to forget that step. It touches on security too, because security is a problem that you absolutely cannot fix with the turning the street from red to green problem. And you see hilarious examples of this, even from very professional teams, where um, 
you know, effectively somebody finds a security flaw and they produce a proof of concept that says like exploits the flaw, right? And so the, the, the maintainers take that proof of concept and they think about it like a failing test. So they're like, I need to make this not work anymore. So they like overfit the solution. They make sure that that proof of concept doesn't work anymore, but they didn't understand or fix the problem. And because in security, like it's never enough to kill one flaw. You have to understand the bigger structure about why that flaw is there and fix the class of problem. So this is an area where it's just like, runs for me is never good enough in security, right? Because if you didn't deeply understand why this flaw existed, you don't mm. know if you really fixed it. Mm. It's, it's literally impossible to write a test suite that will tell you if you fixed mm. it. Because the whole point is that you there's this big universe of yeah, possible yeah. inputs that are, are You haven't unsafe. foreseen it, right, right, right. Exactly. Interesting. So it's like, that's where you ha you're forced to go and do systems level, mathematical structure level thinking. And uh, like, have, I do. I think there's a huge amount of of actual math that programmers do. Even programmers who think they don't like math, right? I've said this before, but they, ones with a lot of experience, do get good at math in the sense that, that mathematicians do it, where they think about the shape of problems, the structure of the structure of entities and problems, and you know, is um, you know, is this is this universe of, of objects that I support, is it a closed universe under this operation? Like, can you ever escape by accident into an invalid state? Right, like, and if you, you need that level of abstract thinking to like close security problems or to write code that doesn't have security problems, right? It's because you have to, mentally you're operating not on a single input at a time, but on the, the set of possible inputs, mm -hmm. right? And it's similar when you design it, designing APIs well is not mm -hmm. that different. You have to be, you're supporting the set of possible programs and not one program, right? And it's a, it's a big leap mm. in abstract thinking to get to that level. And, you, and if you only ever like turn test suites from red to green, you don't get there. Mm -hmm. So you need kind of both paths. Well, it reminds me of what you said at the beginning, going the, the, the grid, the two by two grid with the three X and the nine X, because when I first made Mirage, it was for apps that we were using at Ted. And then when you open source it and other people start using it, you just see yeah. everything changes. Totally. Totally. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, we have a few minutes here just to wrap up. Um, why don't we um, just finish? I think you were just talking about like your next steps for embroider, sure. where you see most of the work happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like next step, I want to rapidly have an RFC for the add-on format. And at mm -hmm. that point, like when we can get that merged, and I don't think it's hard. I think that we're, there's a core of it that's already very stabilized and solid where it'll be a, I would hope to call it a slam dunk RFC because the work's been done. And the, there's not a long design process yeah. that needs to happen. Um, and it, and it doesn't have to cover every edge case. Like it, this is again because we're not going to do the dangerous try to jump the chasm. We're doing many like this is a gradual step, trying to do things the right way. Um, there's no reason we have to cover every edge case of what add-ons do today. If, if there's an, a thing an add-on truly needs that we don't have in the new spec, fine, stay in V1 until we're ready. Right? Mm -hmm. Like we can add to it additively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't have to do a giant up design up front. But there's a core of stuff that's already solid that I want to get in our RFC. And when we do that add-on authors can start adopting that format. And it has a massive impact on, well, so for one thing, it'll make them reliable in embroider, and that's great. It helps even even in uh, like classic Ember CLI, I think it'll help people's builds get faster because you, you, you do less dynamic stuff right, in, your, uh, in your build. And, um, and it has a massive performance impact on embroider. So build performance-wise, um, when you adopt embroider, I've benchmarked a couple of different apps. Um, 
with the full compatibility on, it's it could be like 10%, 20% slower than what you have as an initial build. The incremental build is just as fast. Um, but when you get to the point where all your add-ons are pre-compiled to V2, mm -hmm. uh, it's like way, way faster, like 50% more or more faster. Um, so it's worth doing, right? Like people will be excited by that. And that'll help motivate a bunch of work of cleaning up dynamic stuff in the add-on ecosystem. Right. Um, so yeah, so like I want to do that right away because that's really what's going to help us uh, start to tamp down the long tail of bugs that would make Embroider not stable. Is like right. add-ons doing dynamic stuff. So if we can, that's basically why the RFC is the next step. Because then then, they, then we can actually just go upstream the fixes to all of them. Get people using it. Get more and more add-ons. Yeah, and, to and have we need less people, compatibility issues. Right, and we need people to start using it now. Like people should absolutely please try it. Yeah. Uh, there's the README says how to try it. People have been trying it and filing bugs for me, which is great. Yeah. Like I, you should come in with the expectation that like you'll try it out and you'll m probably get a build error, but you should report that build error and then we'll make sure the next version doesn't have that build error. Right. And maybe even dive in and try to understand it yourself. Totally. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you should. Yes, absolutely. You should. Um, it's written all in TypeScript, uh, which gives you quite a lot of exploit. I mean, so if, oh, if, cool. if you don't know TypeScript, then maybe that's an extra barrier. But yeah. if you want to learn it, maybe it's a good chance. And motivation. It gives you, um, it does. Part of why people do like TypeScript is it helps with that process we just described of diving into a foreign code base and navigating it because yeah. it does. It's, a system like TypeScript is designed for that use case, right? It's trying to help you understand the constraints and the boundaries and what uses what in a foreign code base and, f and follow those threads. Like a type system is designed to help with that. So right. it, it does, uh, even something like the, um, like the options that Embroider accepts, the fact that like they're typed uh, helps. Like you can, right. if, you, if you try to do something that's non-structured, if you use VS Code even just to write your MRCLI build.js, even if you're not writing TypeScript, it'll, because the options themselves are defined in TypeScript, it'll actually tell you if you said something that's not possible. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, these are the con these are the things that are um, I, I think we'll be seeing these benefits more and more as people start using it, and some of that stuff you won't really be able to communicate until you feel it, and yeah. you feel your app building faster, and you feel confident when you're setting an option for an add-on. That's the kind of stuff I think that's actually like, even though it seems like trivial from relative to all the work that's going on is going to make the biggest difference in like the actual totally, lives yeah, of like working definitely. developers. So yeah, yeah. very cool, man. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing definitely, all yeah. this knowledge. Um, it's been fun. If folks want to kind of like keep up with your work, um, follow all this stuff that you're doing. I mean, you're doing, a, this is not even everything you're doing in that ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, sure. What should they do? I mean, yeah, follow me on Twitter, EAF4. Uh, and you know, when, when there's big stuff, I'll definitely tweet it out. Um, I do, I'm, I would like to make some screencasts about what we talked about, you know, highlighting the cool features that are already there. Cause nice. it's, it is totally a thing that apps can try and see and benefit from. I think it would be nice to do like a basic screencast of it. I would like to do that, tweet that out. Very cool. Um, the, the, all the build work for Embroider is in the, in a, the Embroider repo. So it's just like a Embroider build organization. It's called Embroider build. And, uh, it's a mono repo with a bunch of packages in it, but you can, Follow along what's going on there. File your bugs. Try it out. Awesome. Yeah. We'll be sure to link all that stuff in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Thanks again thanks. for your time, Ed. Bye thanks, bye. everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.